In recent years, the last 10 plus years or so, sports have been changed by some math people focused on analytic type things. You may have heard some of this. You've seen it perhaps in basketball where teams are taking more and more three-point shots. Why? Well, three points is worth more than two points. So let's take more three-point shots. Complex math, you see. The same goes for baseball, where more and more players are swinging for the fences, knowing that a home run is so much more valuable than a single or double. And it doesn't really matter if you miss a lot of three-point shots. It doesn't really matter if you strike out a lot. All that teams are trying to do is to increase their chances at the best possible outcome. What can we do to increase our chances at the best possible outcome? Now, this phenomenon is not unique to sports. You see it in the financial markets. You can see it in viral trends on social media and trying to find a way to be trending. You can see it in all sorts of ways, but you can also see it in our attitude towards God. That the Bible reveals that we have a tendency to manipulate God in hopes of getting the best possible outcome with the least amount of difficulty. But that assumes that we understand the system that God works by. And that's a faulty assumption, as our passage in Ecclesiastes 7 shows us this morning. And so we're going to continue looking through Ecclesiastes, and today we are in chapter 7, verses 15 through 29. As the teacher or the preacher that this author of Ecclesiastes has tried to seek out how we are to live wisely for God, and he yet again finds, oh, here's a way we go wrong. Here's a way we don't do this well. So hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 through 29. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out 
and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we give thanks for Your Word. We thank You that all of the Bible is profitable, it is useful, it has been inspired by You, and it corrects us and encourages us and leads us on the right path. And yes, Lord, these verses may not be our favorite verses, they may not be well-known verses, they may not be our choice if we were to hear one thing today, and yet all of Scripture speaks to us. So God, I pray that You would use me in spite of my sin and my weakness to faithfully proclaim Your truth to proclaim the truth of Your Word. And I pray that You would give us ears to hear Your Word today. For You, O God, are a God who speaks and makes Himself known. And so, Spirit, open our ears, open our minds and hearts that we would receive Your Word today and be transformed by the power of it, that we would live by it and accept it as Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our passage in Ecclesiastes 7, we have our author here who, like many places in this book, tells us, hey, here's a problem, and here's the way to fix that problem. Here's a way we go wrong, here is a better way. Here's the solution to the problem. But here's the thing, his solution, his answer presents a new problem, and he doesn't have an answer to that one. So he fixes one problem only to start another one, and he can't answer that next problem. So I guess he gets partial credit. But it is the full Word of God. It is true. And even the unfixableness of his problem we see is ultimately fixed later on in Scripture. And so that first problem that the author finds can be found in verse 15. He says, In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. The author is saying that life does not work as it seems it should. We expect that people who are good and righteous, they should be blessed and prosper. And we expect those who are wicked and do evil, they should suffer the consequences. But he says, I've looked at the world and that's not always the case. And that's a problem for us because we would like to know how the world works and life would be a whole lot simpler if it worked according to a simple set of rules. And so many of us want life to operate according to karma, the idea that you reap what you sow, that what goes around comes around, that what you get out of life is what you put into life. And that's how we expect the world to work. Many of us, in fact, operate like that is the way the world works. But the author of Ecclesiastes tells us 
I've seen examples of life not working that way. Hmm. Now this, for some of you, will be familiar because it is a major focus of our adult Sunday school class on the book of Job. The Bible tells us that Job was a righteous man who suffered even though he had done nothing wrong to deserve such suffering. And that perplexes Job. And he has friends who come around him and they assume the world works according to this reap what you sow idea. And they are certain, well, Job, if you're suffering, the reason is you have done something worthy of suffering. That's the explanation you're looking for. But the book of Job, like Ecclesiastes chapter 7, tells us life doesn't always work that way. It is not that simple. And so the author of Ecclesiastes tries to help us. He's like, guys, I noticed there's this problem. Here are some words of wisdom for how to live since this is a problem. And so he gives us three words of wisdom. And the first one we see in verse 16. He says, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Now, now at first glance, this seems like a really weird verse. Like, doesn't God want us to be holy as he is holy? Didn't Jesus say and teach that unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom of God? How can he tell us, don't be overly righteous? I thought that was the whole point, God. Well, his point is that we should not assume that doing good and right will guarantee our safety. That since the world does not operate according to that karma principle, we should not try to build up this huge stash of good works thinking it will keep us from suffering and hardship. That if you try to be as good as possible as a kind of insurance against tragedy, you're going to be devastated when tragedy strikes. That no amount of good deeds guarantees your safety. You cannot secure a good outcome with good works because the world doesn't always work that way. But then the author, before we just jump into bad ideas, he needs to correct us from going too far in the other direction. And so the second word of wisdom that kind of is the, the pair here is in verse 17. And so he says, be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So hearing that the wicked aren't necessarily punished might make some of us assume that, well, I guess we can be like as wicked as we want without fear of punishment. If I won't necessarily face consequences for my actions, I'm just going to do what I'd like to do even if it's wrong. I can extort, steal, and oppress because I see how sometimes the wicked thrive. But the word sometimes is key there. Because the author of Ecclesiastes is warning us here against tempting fate. That just because the world doesn't always work on a reap what you sow principle, it doesn't mean it never works that way. Sometimes the wicked do suffer the consequences of their actions. I'm sure you've noticed that the state troopers don't pull over every single car that is speeding. But perhaps you've had the opportunity to learn that 
they do pull over some of those cars that are speeding. Well, in the same way, we should not be a fool and think that our wickedness will necessarily go unpunished. And so that brings us, those, the, that pair, the first two words of wisdom, brings us to the third word of wisdom in verse 18. And it gets blown up in verses 19 through 22 so we can understand it better. It's essentially, we need to take hold of those first two Proverbs, verses 16 and 17, and realize that wisdom is still an advantage. That was last week's sermon. Living wisely is still advantageous in life. He writes in verse 19 that wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So even though pursuing righteousness and wisdom does not necessarily guarantee safety, it's still really good. It's better than all the alternative paths. It will strengthen us for adversity. It will guide us through times of uncertainty. And wisdom helps us in other ways. It helps us to see that we are not perfectly righteous. That's what verse 20 says. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. None of us have been so righteous that we have any room to complain about our suffering or adversity. We cannot claim to have only done what is good and right. We cannot claim to have never sinned. In fact, other people would be happy to chime in and go, oh yeah, I've seen them sin. Yeah, yeah, I have. That's what verses 21 and 22 say. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. And so just as people might exaggerate your faults, you also know that you've, you know, maybe exaggerated the faults of others on very rare occasions. And some of what they say about you might actually be partially true because you, in fact, are a sinner. So we're like, oh, yeah, I guess wisdom does help me to see my own sinfulness, that I'm not always right. And that helps us be a little humble. It helps us to realize that if it were up to us to decide who prospers and who suffers, we'd have a really hard time making hard and fast rules. And odds are that people would try to exploit our rules and game the system to get their desired outcomes through nefarious means. But thankfully, we are not responsible for determining how the world works. That's God's job. But how, how does he do it? If God is not judging people immediately based on their wickedness or righteousness, if he's not operating on the principle of I'm going to immediately bless the righteous and I will immediately punish the wicked, if that's not what God is doing, then what is he doing? And so that's the problem that he's now created with his answer. And that's the question he focuses on in verses 23 through 29. That if God does not operate on this karma principle, how does he operate? And guess what? He has no idea. None. He is searching for the answer. Look in those verses. You see the words find and found over and over again. But it's usually, I didn't find anything. 
We see the words for seek and sought, that the author found out the world does not work according to this principle, and he's searching for the principle it does work according to, what rule governs the world, how God decides who prospers and who is punished, and he's like, I don't know. I didn't find the answer. He says he tested all these things with wisdom, but he couldn't put the pieces together. It's not for a lack of trying. Look at verse 25. He's just pounding up the words there. I turned my heart to know, to search out, and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things. He's like, I I tried everything. He searched for answers. He looked everywhere. I like to imagine that this guy had one of those giant wall-sized bulletin boards. And he had papers and pictures and he had those yarns with thumbtacks and all these connections. And over here, he had a big old chalkboard with mathematical proofs on it. And he had his laptop open with Excel spreadsheets tracking all of this stuff. And his hair's crazy and he's had too much coffee. And he's just like, I don't know. How does the world work? And he, he's like, I didn't find a lot. He says he found two things. We can kind of find two things in here that he thinks, like, I, these, like, I think I got these two. One, wisdom is good. Thanks. Thanks, bud. All right. And the second is, we don't seek wisdom. Oh, that's a bummer. So wisdom is good, but we don't look for it and follow it. So the first thing, wisdom is good, you see in verse 26. It relates to our Old Testament reading in Proverbs 7. That this woman spoke about in verse 26. This is not all women. This is not some unique woman. This is the personification, just like Proverbs 7, of a woman of folly and temptation. That just as a seductive woman can tempt a man, so folly, going our own way can be seductive to both men and women. When we leave behind the path of wisdom, we end up enslaved to sin. And it is only when we seek to please God by trusting His wisdom that we are freed from that sin and that slavery. And so he tells us, wisdom is this really good thing to seek. But the second thing he found was that we don't do that. Even though we know it's the good thing, we go our own way. Look at verse 29 at the end of the chapter. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He can tell that all people have some sense of right and wrong, what we call a conscience. People know what they should do, But they don't always do that. They go their own way, making their own schemes for how they think the world should work. And the author is looking around, and he can hardly find anyone, man or woman, who can explain this foolishness of not doing what we know we should do. And so the author's takeaway here is essentially that he went looking for the rules of how the world works, And what he found was pretty much a set of rules, God's wisdom, right and wrong, that we should at least do the right thing. But what he found is that none of us do that right thing. 
even though our conscience is corrupted by sin and we don't always, we, our conscience doesn't line up with God's word, we still disobey our corrupted conscience. And God has given us all of these good things. He has given us this path and we're not satisfied with it. We want to know the schemes for how to secure blessing and avoid suffering. In video game terms, we want the cheat codes. We want to know not how to follow the levels of this video game like the designers worked it up. We want the cheat codes that makes us super strong and gets us to the end right away. That's what we want. When Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the Garden of Eden, they wanted information that God had kept from them. They didn't want to trust and follow His path. They wanted to know all of it ahead of time. All of these efforts, all of this scheming shows that we tend to not be interested in following God or obeying God. We are far more interested in manipulating God to get what we want. But when we try to game the system like this, we forget that we are not governed by some impersonal set of rules that can be exploited. All the world is governed by a personal God who is holy and righteous. God cannot be tricked or manipulated. He sees everything. He knows everything. He sees to our hearts. And God does not want us seeking schemes to get the best possible outcomes in life. He wants us seeking Him. You see, the idea behind gaming the system is that you are exploiting a set of rules in order to get an outcome that is better than you could ever hope to get. With God, He freely offers us the best possible outcome that is better than we could ever dream up. And we don't have to scheme for it. He says, here it is. I would like you to have it. We don't have to manipulate God. We don't have to twist His arm or any of that. We simply have to trust that He offers us the greatest possible outcome freely as a gift. The author of Ecclesiastes couldn't see how this worked yet. And you can find proof that he, he didn't have the answer yet in verse 20. See, when the author of Ecclesiastes lived on earth, he was right. There was not a righteous man who does good and never sins. But a few hundred years later, such a man would live on earth. That Jesus of Nazareth lived a life of perfect righteousness. Trusting God's wisdom, obeying His commands, and He was capable of doing that because He was divine Himself, the eternal Son of God. In spite of all of that, Jesus suffered and died a horrific death by crucifixion, which seems to be the greatest piece of evidence against that karma principle that the righteous should be blessed and the wicked should prosper. If this righteous Son of God suffered, then the karma principle is out. Justice is out. There must be no justice in the world. But it's in the death of Jesus that God is actually punishing wickedness. That Jesus took upon Himself the sins of God's people in the past, in the present, 
and in the future. And He suffered in their place because God's principle of justice needed to be upheld. In order for God to be good and just, wickedness had to be punished. And so Jesus let it be punished in Him. He suffered the consequences we deserve. And He also gives to us His righteousness as a gift so that all who trust in Him could possess a real righteousness that we can never earn or establish ourselves. And Jesus rose again from the dead, showing us that all who perish in His righteousness will not perish forever, but will have eternal life. And so if we are holding on to His righteousness, we have that eternal life with us. And He has accomplished that salvation for His people, and He gives it as a gift to be received. We don't need to find a loophole to get this. We don't need to twist God's arm to get it. We don't need to say, God, look at my resume. I deserve it, right? He gives it out of His amazing grace to all who believe. And if this is what God freely gives His people, then why would we ever try to manipulate Him into giving us something? If God is so generous towards His children, why would we try to game the system to get good things from Him? Should we not instead live wisely according to His commands, trusting this is the good way to go, even if that good way includes suffering and hardship? Should we not cling to His promises and pray them back to Him, knowing He delights to keep His Word to His children? You see, as we come to this text today, we need to be warned against this temptation to try to trick God. That if we think we can trick God into thinking we really believe when we don't, if we think we can sneak into heaven on some kind of technicality, if we think we can argue our case that based on my righteousness I belong, then we need to see that the wicked will be judged. And only the truly righteous like Christ will be saved. For those who believe, we trust in His righteousness and we hold on to it, not our own, knowing this is what saves. God is clear about the coming judgment. He is clear about how to be saved from it. He is clear about what will happen in the judgment of all things. And He says, Christ is Savior for all who believe. So repent and believe and be saved. Yes, we who trust in Him will suffer in this life. The life doesn't seem fair all that often. We often ask, where is justice? Where is the reward? But looking in Scripture, we see that we have a God who turned the most unjust suffering into the greatest blessing. And one day soon, that one who suffered is coming back to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, we who trust in Him will share in His victory and see justice fully done for His glory. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that You would give us ears to hear today. Give us ears to hear, but also eyes to see that though there is injustice in the world around us and though it can feel Like we don't get what we deserve. We know judgment is coming. 
And we know that we cannot stand before that great judgment day apart from Christ, that we will fall and we will suffer God's wrath and death and hell. And so, Lord, open our hearts to believe. May we trust in Jesus and so know that we have hope to stand on that day in Him, no matter what we face in this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.